Stated or federal news radio statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the IT strategy for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO? How is it using technology and innovation to change the way it does business? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Jamie Holcomb, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Jamie, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. This is a great day because the mask mandate has been lifted and everybody seems to be coming out of their skins, out of the remoteness. And I can't wait because people need to be social. It's just part of our nature. Uh, before we delve into specific initiatives, Jamie, would you provide us with an overview of the history and mission of the United States Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO? How are USPTO's operations funded? Well, we are fee funded. We take no taxes. And that's an important point because we have a fiduciary responsibility to our fee payers that they get the biggest bang for the buck. And that is registering trademarks and awarding patents. What about your, your office, Jamie, as a CIO? Um, how is it organized? And, and more importantly, how do you support the overall mission of PTO? Yeah, well, that's a very important reason why I accepted the position to serve, and I really do believe it's a service to the nation because in the Constitution, our mission is outlined to register intellectual property to those individuals and their property rights. It's a really solemn duty. And the other thing, USPTO is the innovation agency for America. It's an engine of growth to take the inventions of our entrepreneurs and then to award them patents and defend their property rights have created some of the greatest things the world has ever seen. And without that incentive, we just wouldn't have the great economy that we do. So I took the job to say, hey, let's modernize this PTO, the Patent and Trademark Office, because although it had a great foundation in the core, they were concentrating very hard on the mission of business, and they forgot about the underlying support structure and infrastructure, and pretty much the internet passed them by. So they weren't taking advantage of a lot of the internet technologies of the past 20 years. Uh, we do have an underlying core of client-server architecture. Nothing wrong with that, because at the time, it was the best thing to do. But now we need to modernize and move on. So as all government agencies are, it's a very structured and bureaucratic way to accomplish a mission. And what I've done to the organization is created a new way of working. 
And that's exactly what we call it. Hashtag NWOW, new ways of working. And in this, we tried to emphasize agility. And it's not just a process. If you're just doing an agile checklist, you're not agile. Because that checklist needs to be checked all the time for whether it's pertinent in this situation or not. Checklists and SOPs, as I learned in the Army, are merely guidelines for tactical execution. And what matters is what happens on the ground. And trying to get that mindset into the IT development and staff is key to producing better, faster, and cheaper results. What we were doing at the PTO prior to my getting there was emphasizing a lot of compliance and governance. And although, of course, it's needed, the problem with, I see with government bureaucracy is an over-reliance on compliance and governance. We need to be more agile, like Silicon Valley, like a lot of the commercial practices that I'm associated with because I'm coming from the commercial world. You need to bring those practices into the government and run an agency like the PTO as a business. And as I was saying before, because we are fee-funded, we have that obligation and responsibility to bring in those commercial best practices. So as an example, the organization is really interesting because we've taken and we're not destroying the current HR reporting structure, but rather we're applying the commercial matrix organization into the government. What does that mean? Well, although you maintain your reporting structure, your job descriptions, your positions, and everything else, Every day, you're assigned to a product development team. So we just eliminated the project management organization, and we created product teams. We went from over 200 separate and unique projects into three zero or 30 unique products. And they have four product lines, and it's very easy. They have patent product line, trademark product line, the back office or business product line, and then the IT or the infrastructure product line, each having about seven or eight products amongst those teams, those four separate product lines. And in that, we've created a new way daily to operate and get better, cheaper, and faster. When you're when you're architecting such a, such a an office with such an important mission, what are your specific duties and responsibilities, Jamie, as as CIO? Well, it goes down to a strategic philosophy. As the CIO, you have the obligation to set the vision and then show a roadmap about how to get there. But as in everything, that duty and mission has a lot to do with the culture. So you have to apply the right tools to the right people. The three things in business, people, process, and tools, all of them are necessary to make sure that a mission is successful, that a mission is accomplished. So what we need to do is take those tools and give them to the patents and trademarks teams so they're more efficient, better, faster, and cheaper in the execution of that mission. And so that's really inculcating the mission structure into the tool providing for the organization. We're a support organization. If you can't tell me in your IT position 
what you're doing to accomplish that mission is awarding patents and or registering trademarks. That's it. If you can't relate about how your job, how your physical duties every day are around that mission, then you have to really question what you're doing and why you're doing it. That's wonderful. I mean, it underscores the fact that you're, that IT or technology itself, innovation is a mission enabler. And, and I was wondering, you know, given that role, given that responsibility, and given your, your philosophy that you've outlined, what are your top, say, three challenges, management challenges, whatever, that you face in your position? And how have you sought to address those challenges? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I will uh, do the old thing about in real estate, uh, the three top priorities are location, 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 right? All right. So in my role, my biggest three priorities are culture, culture, and culture. The fact of the matter is we have to ensure that people have the right attitude. And so we're trying to create a culture shift with those new ways of working. And that culture shift includes the ABCs of moving away from the old ways and into the new ways of working. And they ABCs are specifically act now. So you have to have a sense of urgency. Be bold. Don't just do little things. Anybody can fix a label or a bug in a program. But if you're trying to tackle something and you hit the logic flow or the workflow to make things important, be bold. Do things, something that really matters. And finally, C is for ABC. C is for simplify. Oh, wait a minute. It's spelled with an S, but you won't forget it. Anyway, the simplified part is we do so many things for compliance and governance that are really not required. In fact, one of the things that I think about almost daily is if we were applying Silicon Valley, venture capital, and private equity into the equation and really spending our dollars only with what we needed, we would actually run out of money before we made all the compliance checks. And so you really have to think not only minimum viable product in the DevSecOps way, well, what is the minimum viable compliance that you require? Not everything but the minimum that you can make sure that you're secure and you're ready to go out and you check off all the boxes without having to have three committees and three months to figure out whether or not it's approved and getting permission instead of asking forgiveness. So we're all about making things happen, acting now, being bold and simplifying the process. When you initially said ABC, I thought you were going to say always be closing, but um, it's a great acronym. It really uh, flashes up what we were talking about. So, Jamie, you're very passionate about the role. You've done a lot of work over the time that you've been there. But what has surprised you most since taking on this leadership position? The thing that surprised me the most is the dedication and loyalty of the staff. They get it. They are committed to make the economy rev because they want to see the individual entrepreneurs and, and innovators get recognition, create their property rights to defend. And so why is that important? I usually am aware of federal workers going for 20, 22, 25 years and then retiring. Heck, I think the average tenure for the people here at the USPTO is something on the order of 22 years. Most of them are retiring at 35 and 40. So the dedication to the mission, there is really some great things happening at the USBTO. It is a tight collegial team of intellectual engineers and lawyers who get things done. Now, 
That is a great part. But the con, the, those are the pros. The con of that is the fact that people get set in their ways sometimes. And you got to shake things up every once in a while to make sure you haven't forgotten the outside and what's going on in the technology realm. And so as an example, I said it before. You know, the fact of the matter is the internet passed by the PTO and, you know, nobody even said goodbye. So we have to bring the cloud into perspective. We have to bring artificial intelligence and all blockchain and RPA, remote process automation and so forth. We need to bring that into the PTO in a very synchronized and smart way so that we learn the lessons from the past, don't recommit them in the future, and get the biggest bang for the buck, better, cheaper, faster. Wonderful perspective. So, you know, uh, JB, could you tell us a little about your career path? And more importantly, what insights and mindset have you brought from your, say, previous experience in the private sector and what have you into federal service? Well, as you can tell by my prior statements, it's all about a sense of urgency. If the burning platform is not on fire, I mean, you got to create the fire. you got to make people see that sense of urgency. And I love that about the commercial world. It's not what, it's all about what have you done for me lately? And that's great that you did all that stuff. How are you capitalizing on it in this quarter? So one of the great commercial practices that I've been is a 30, 60, and 90 day plan. You know, one of the fallacies that the government has is they, they think that they can make plans for five and 10 years out. And the reality of the world is if you think you can even guess maybe three years out with any type of accuracy, you're fooling yourself. So what you need to do is concentrate on the vision for one to three years out, and then every quarter figure out how you're going to get there. And once the quarter ends, everything needs to adapt. You need to have a dynamic analysis, not a static one. This whole thing about the macroeconomics, if all things remain the same and this one variable changes, this will happen. Well, that never works because all the variables are changing simultaneously. And the fact of the matter is, you can only make a decision as good as the information you have, and you'll have better information in three months. But the point is, you'll never know. You have to take a stand. That's where courage comes in. That's where the fact that I'm going to stake my success on this then in three months, you figure out, was that the right way? And if not, you adapt and adjust. The theory of sunk cost has left government bureaucracy. And why do I say that? Well, I put this much into it. I need to make sure it's successful and, and it, it succeeds. Yeah, but you're throwing good money after bad in some cases. And that's where the judgment comes in. Sometimes you need to persevere. But there's a fine line between perseverance and stubbornness. There's a fine line between throwing good money after bad or actually saying this has real promise. And that's where leadership and courage, technical courage comes in. Because sometimes it just needs that little bit more. But I've seen projects go on and on and on. And all you're doing is wasting money on a solution that's already three to five years old. And that's where we need to change the procurement, the way we actually um, contract for and have our vendors be accountable to our old contracts. We need to come up with a better way in the government to actually work 
with our federal, uh, with our commercial partners in order to bring the best innovations into government. What is the IT strategy for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office? I will explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jamie Holcomb, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, you mentioned your three priorities, and uh, I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about them. Sure, yeah. Um, number one, cybersecurity. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you think you're secure, watch out. And it does start with the basics. It's just like when you walk out of your home, do you lock your doors? Do you make sure the home is secure? We have to start with the basics before you can get into all the high-speed cyber, you know, high-tech, all these things that people seem to be overwhelmed about. And it's not. It starts with the basics. Just be secure. Lock your doors. In other words, have multi-factor authentication in order to get into your systems. Don't allow passwords to be shared. Don't give people access. Don't press on the links that somebody says, hey, you can get $100,000. Just press this link. It's, it's really the basics. So you start on the inside. And of course, you have to be protected from the outside. And so one of the big things about cyber having client server realm, and we're moving to the modernization, bringing it to the internet age. When we do our modernization, we have the ability to actually design insecurity at the beginning. And there's a lot of work being done right now on zero trust. Zero trust, and just like security, it's not a tool. It's not a thing. It is a philosophy. It is a way of thinking. The old client server way and defense in depth is not a bad way. And in fact, is a very good way to do work. There are a couple of weaknesses of defending in depth. And the system administrator named Snowden showed that to the NSA. In other words, even though he was given permission to get through over the moat, through the bridge, into the castle, and then inside to the Knights of the Round Table, where only the Knights are allowed, right? That system administrator was allowed. Well, he shouldn't have been allowed to the Knights of the Round Table because from there he could get anywhere he wanted and move laterally throughout the castle. We need to have a design theory of zero trust where we don't allow these people where they don't need to be. 
So that's a really hard way to say. There's a difficult way between assuming that everybody's okay and then challenging everybody. And they might not even know you're challenging them in the sessions because they have certain tokens and they have a certain risk profile that we're providing them. And then when you challenge that risk profile after it gets over a certain score, then if it even goes into a further risky profile, you can kick them out and have them re-authenticate. And so because of that, the zero trust environment is a design thinking. And that's the number one cybersecurity thing we're trying to get into is a different way to think. I could talk forever about insider threat because it's not so much that we're worried about spies and you know guys really selling all our secrets, but we're worried about simple neglect of leaving your doors open on your car with your keys right on the dash. That's what we're trying to prevent with insider threat. People might not even know that they're insecure or that they have things open. We have to educate our internal employees. Yes, we have to trust them, but we also have to look at their patterns and what they're, how they're behaving. If they normally do work in the afternoon, because we're all remote now, right? Say some guy doesn't like, some patent examiner doesn't like um, waking up early in the morning. He gets up at 10 and his pattern is to work from 11 to 8. And then all of a sudden, you know, after months and months, we see a pattern where all of a sudden he's up at 6 a.m. Well, is it him? Should we think about that? Should we look at that behavioral analysis and say, wait a second, let's challenge that session to make sure that that's him. Those are the types of design scenarios we really need to think about in the future of modernizing our IT infrastructure for security. Jamie, IT modernization has been a key priority for some time within federal agencies. I'd like to explore your efforts at modernizing infrastructure and systems. Specifically, would you tell us more about your cloud migration efforts? What are the benefits and some of the key challenges to moving to the cloud? Yes, we have a great way of understanding whether or not an application can be moved from our current client server into the cloud and how much refactoring it's really required. Uh, we've gotten a good process down where we're actually figuring out if we have green, yellow, or red in our scoring of that ability. Some of our old client server score red because it's very difficult and it would almost require a whole redesign. So we'll keep that in our old data center. But if you have a yellow or green score, it means that there's an ability to refactor at such a pace that you can really get out to the cloud. The green, you might be able to get out to the cloud right away with minor changes. The yellow takes some changes. And so we've scored all these and we've asked all of our 30 different product teams to look at their applications and get the score this year. For those that are green, we'd like to move them to the cloud as soon as possible. And we're trying to be cloud agnostic in order to get the better, cheaper, and faster. And so on the cheaper and faster part, we have to make sure that it makes uh, business sense to go out into the cloud. Sometimes our applications are so either process intensive and or storage intensive that the chattiness of going back and forth over the internet might actually be more expensive out in the cloud than it would be to hold in our data center and do it as we currently are doing it. You have to make that determination application by application. And we're doing that in a business case analysis of all of our applications. So the cloud has a lot of promise, but it's not a panacea. 
you need to ensure that you're looking at it from a very cold and stark business case, financial and functional analysis. That's a wonderful perspective. You know, Jamie, continuing on with your modernization strategy, I was wondering, how does the stabilization of your critical systems factor into that overall strategy? And more importantly, how do these efforts that you're working on fortify the resiliency of your office? That's a great question because one of the first things I did was say, what do we have? In order to figure out where you want to go, you got to figure out what you have and where you stand, what ground that you're currently on. And as I described it before, we had about a lot. Most of our 20-year-old applications are in client-server base. So what we had to do then was figure out, well, how quickly can we move these applications into the cloud or modernize them? But in order to do that, you have to really stabilize what you currently have because you're running on it. Um, the fact of the matter is you need to deliver the mission and then transition or transform the agency simultaneously. That's the difficult part. It's easy to create new stuff in Greenfield, and it's pretty easy to just run the old stuff. But doing it simultaneously and synchronizing those efforts is where true professionals come in because you have to make the trade-offs between what you stabilize and what you move and you have to modernize at the same time. And the key is to make sure those decisions of synchronization coincide with your delivery of the mission. So it's really easy to say we got Greenfield, but we couldn't do that. We had to make sure we stabilized our core infrastructure, what we were running on, such that the examiners have a solid platform. In order to do that, we had to eliminate a lot of the technical debt that had accumulated over the 20 years. And what that meant was bringing the hardware, software, network, and all the old stuff up to current code base, such that you didn't have to buy it on the gray market or, or just be uh, accepting of the fact that nobody makes these parts anymore. You can't be in that position. You have to get rid or eliminate your technical debt. So once that was done, especially on your 26, I'm sorry, we have 26 critical system applications that if we don't run, we can't run our PTO. And you have to do those type of high value asset assessments to know where you are, to know what's important, what's priority of all the systems. Once we did that, now we've got the transition plan to modernize. And we're modernizing based on the priority of those high value assets and those 26 mission critical applications. That's a wonderful um Response. I've, I've got to ask you a question, though, going backwards about some believe that, you know, IT modernization is not enough. And rather than simply modernizing their systems that agent, agencies need to really, as you've kind of conveyed, to create a dynamic IT environment that can evolve as requirements evolve. So I wanted to get your perspective. Why is IT modernization not enough? And where I'm going with this, Jamie, is what are the implications of digital transformation and how does it offer that IT model that is both flexible and scalable? Well, that question is a complex one to solve. I think because the world has seen so many technological advances and to say to somebody, well, you can't do that here because we have to comply there is no longer acceptable. In other words, the expectation is 
that if they can do it in the commercial world, we should be able to do it in the government world. And so just saying it'll never happen here is not good enough in the government anymore. We have to transform digitally into the new world because people expect that. Our citizens expect that. Our applicants expect that. So in order to meet those expectations, we have to take the old world and capitalize on what works and then create the new world in which we can actually integrate the digital capabilities into our workflow. And it's not just enough to do that because you have to change your culture inside. The government seems to think that they're, they're there and people have to conform to the government. That is a terrible way to think about it. The digital transformation is only one part of a larger cultural transformation where government employees realize the customer is the citizen. The customer is the people who put us there and they are paying our paycheck. And so in order to make sure that they're getting the services they need, they have to talk to the customer. They have to do user experience workflow type understandings of what the customer wants. So as an example, I'm actually heading to Oxford University this summer in London, and I'm going to be attending with 50 of the greatest entrepreneurs currently involved with innovation and creativity in America. And I'm going to hear firsthand and take their notes and understand how we can create a better environment for entrepreneurs and applicants to trademarks and patents. And we're going to talk about the real sticky issues about fraud, about people trying to take their property rights away, about capitalism and how to make it better and how to provide that engine of growth. And so it's really getting into the user head because we serve somebody and that somebody is the citizen. It is the innovator applicant for patents and trademarks. And that's where the digital transformation is not just enough for the hardware software network. That's just the basic core and the foundation. We need to get out there and transform the way we think about how we serve our customers. Jamie, I'd like to focus on USPTO's uh, trademark and patent registration process. Uh, each process consists of systems and applications supporting every step in the trademark and patent process application submission, attorney review, registration, and continued use. Would you elaborate on efforts to improve the agency's technology for reviewing and approving trademark applications? Of course, that's my job. You've just outlined exactly why I took the role, because it's all about providing tools to the examiners that are better, cheaper, and faster, right? But they're also modern. Uh, the search tool is one example of something that's really old, and we re recently replaced it with something very new. And the old tool, in order to search for patents, can you imagine that a patent examiner has to sign their name and certify that this idea that's being presented is so novel and unique it doesn't have to work. It just has to be novel and unique, such that nobody has ever thought of it ever in the world before this time. How do you do that? You know? And so they were searching in the old way through Boolean parsing of words and abstracts of almost all types of documents, both inside what we consider our prior art reference to outside and using bot crawls to figure out 
throughout the world if this thing has not been thought of before. So what we did was instead of parsing individual words and creating these huge search algorithms, we've actually used machine learning, specifically TensorFlow and Python, to create new algorithms, which are neural network feedback loops of different examiners to the point where they can search and find haystacks of categories. So instead of searching on individual words, now we're searching on concepts. And those concepts are the haystacks. And hopefully the patent examiner can find that needle in the haystack or that concept. And they can search many concepts to the point where they have all these different haystacks. You can create a hundred thousand, whatever you need, these different haystacks, and then go searching through these haystacks. And based on that feedback loop of whether or not the results are coming in relatively better or worse, the examiner can use that search tool and figure out how to get to the actual prior art that would defeat or would award, reject or award the patent. So it's a great time to be part of this new ways of working and how we're actually looking at the workflow. And search is just one of the larger, but one of the tools that we're using. We do classification using machine learning. Well, we're doing a lot of things to augment the examiner, not replace the examiner. So a lot of people think that artificial intelligence will just take over the world and we just have to push a button. Those are the worst types of automation. Because an algorithm left by itself without a human trying to guide it and coach it and teach it is not going to be as effective or precise as someone, a man in the loop. Someone's actually putting some reasonable human rationale into the way that you get these results through these algorithms. That was wonderful. You know, I was wondering, you've mentioned before, Jamie, that cybersecurity is a key priority of yours. And you know, with the with the pandemic, people going remote has increased the risk profile of of cyber uh, exponentially. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your IT security approach and in particular, Jamie, the sort of cyber training efforts that you're institutionalizing. Yes, as I was discussing before, it starts with the basics and your employees really do represent the basic security infrastructure from which you're either going to be secure or unsecure. So instead of the old PowerPoint static slides for your security awareness training that's required every year, what we did was we recently went out and created videos and we gamified the situation where during the video, you're asked or challenged to pick a route or pick an answer about how you would respond if you saw the security incident. And then, you know, just... There's, there's a number of different movies and so forth where you can pick a chance and you go down this one path and you see the different movie sequences. That's the same thing we did with the security training. And we got some really great feedback that people were engaged. Uh, they really loved the new way of looking at it. They learned a lot. They paid attention. And so it really um, made a great impression on the fact that you have to engage individuals to you know, you have to incentivize them to learn. And, and gaming is a good way to make things fun and you can learn a lot from it at the same time. Uh, that's just one way we're trying to get the security awareness to the top and forefront of people. Another way we're trying to do it is that resiliency that you talked about, my number two priority. 
resiliency is not just, but it does include, but it's not just having data centers that can back one another up. It also has to do with if you spill coffee on your laptop, how are you going to do your job that day? And so you have to think about plan Bs. And plan A is not finished until you actually have a credible and workable plan B solution. And here's the resiliency part that you test. If you don't test plan B, if you don't make sure it works, all it is is a theory. You would not believe how many people go into a tabletop exercise and they're like, okay, great, we have a plan. But no, when you actually execute that plan, there are so many things, oh, well, I thought this. And you didn't realize that nobody's going to really do that. And this is not up and running. Oh, and your contract doesn't have that SLA. You really need to execute your plan B to ensure that it works. And you need to do it at least yearly for any uh, critical or major system. How is the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office innovating to change the way it does business? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jamie Holcomb, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. What effect has the COVID pandemic had, Jamie, from your perspective, on the office's workload and how it gets done? You know, we're lucky at the PTO because before I ever got there, they had one of the, they had the model telecommute uh, in the government. In other words, of our 9,000 or so examiners, almost 75% worked out of their home and telecommuted before COVID-19. So it's really interesting. I've lost now that recruiting part because everybody's doing remote telework now. Oh, darn it. But I will say that because of our great infrastructure, all we had to do was scale up. And so we actually have increased productivity. And it was mostly for the support workers that Instead of going to headquarters, they now work out of their home. We have proved that 98, 99% of us can do our job at home and do it just as good or better because our productivity metrics for turning around applications for patents and trademarks has actually improved over the COVID timeframe. Now, how does that relate to the whole remote work and increasing the attack profile uh, of cybersecurity? It just gives 
those hackers the ability to attack more points of presence. And that's where you really need to ensure that your patent examiners, they're not allowed to do this and they can't, but just imagine a regular enterprise going out and trying to work from Starbucks on an unsecure Wi-Fi. I mean, there are so many spoofing attempts at people just capturing their information, capturing the passwords on a Wi-Fi unencrypted network at Starbucks, and then retransmitting it and taking away your profile and your personality and your identification. It's really increased tremendously. The amount of phishing attempts, according to the FBI, increased 300% in the first three months of COVID. So the fact of the matter is we keep in good tight um, uh, collaboration with the FBI for fraud and for security because they are the prosecutory arm of the intellectual property. Trade secrets and so forth are prosecuted by the FBI, both domestically and internationally. And so we keep up on those statistics and the understanding of fraud to ensure that people are not getting uh, taken advantage of during COVID. That's wonderful. You know, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, emerging technologies, robotic process automation. I was wondering if you could spend a little time telling us about how uh, your office is using RPA and bots to enhance or change the way business gets done and the workflow at patent and trade. I I would love to address that because emerging technologies is a, there's a definition for it. And uh, we just hired somebody, um, a great person named Jerry Ma, and he is our current emerging technologies director. Uh, And he's a very young man from Facebook. And um, the reason we hired him is because of his phenomenal approach and philosophy and strategy and his vision for emerging technologies. Insofar as the definition means hey, it's immature. The reason it's emerging is because it's brand new and it hasn't been proven yet. So do you really want to put your crown jewels into something that you don't know if it works or not? There needs to be proof of concepts. There needs to be pilots where you get verifiable results. You need to understand what the pros and cons of this RPA, this blockchain, this AI and ML work. In order to do that then, it goes back to those pilots that I talked about with 30, 60, and 90. If you don't get results at the end of 90 days, then you have to starve that failure. You only feed success. And then once you get the success at the end of it, you figure out how to adapt. And then, then you can create the business case on which you actually invest or you don't. But when people say, you know, how do you merge the emerging technologies into the line? Well, it's much like how do you take R&D and make it O&M? How do you take research and development, make it operations and um, maintenance? The fact of the matter is those two worlds don't mesh very well because operations and maintenance are all about efficiencies and making things work. Research and development is all about the possibilities. So that intersection or that bridge in order to go from R&D to the O&M world is the pilot, is the results, is the measurements for uh, better, faster, and cheaper. And I don't think the government does a great job in research and development at all because they expect success all the time. And in research and development, you have to expect failure. And in fact, you have to fund failure in order to know what not to do next. And see, when you have such tight budgets, 
the first thing that's going to be defunded is going to be your R&D. And that's probably the worst thing you could do. I'm not saying you could have an unlimited R&D budget, but you do need to have a good portion budgeted for R&D so that you can fail but uh, succeed in the long run. That's great to know. You know, Jamie, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and go to data analytics. I was wondering how in your office and beyond, how is USPTO using analytics and, and data analytics in particular to, to maybe improve services and quality of service, but possibly identify new solutions and new services and better inform business decisions? That's key. So first off, um, examiners, that's what they do. They analyze data. So uh, the basic mission of the USPTO is data analytics. Uh, we have something like um, 19 petabytes of information online to any of the examiners and all the examiners. And that's called prior art. And they have to look at that prior art in order to figure out how to move forward on their exact, on their application, on their examination. But you asked more of the question about business analytics. And I love that because we do have a data warehouse, we do have data lakes, and we do have a data reservoir. What the heck? I mean, why all these different names? Well, you know, our data warehouse is the actual data governance and, you know, it's finances um, record of source, right? The, the, the source record, the, the, the source of truth, you know, and we only have one truth. But in your data lake, you can create a lot of different ideas. And you can have data lakes for this or for that and pilots and so forth. And your data reservoir, that's actually just a lot of unstructured data that uh, you can run a lot of experiments on. So we, we try to create a data federation. And we are going to be tackling data governance and actually data analytics in a lot bigger sense once we modernize our systems, you know, you have to really get your base and your core figured out before you can, you have to become, before you can become great, you have to be good. Before you can become excellent, you have to be great. So there's the crawl, walk, run aspect of doing things. And I believe that all these efforts to centralize data are actually futile. I think that it's a big money spend and draw because Unless you have a federated data set, you really don't have it. You, you have the illusion that everything's centralized and everybody's going to come to you, but that's never the case. I mean, once the internet took, we realized that the big old centralized uh, data models, I my personal opinion is they don't work. Now, do you have to have a centralized database in order to run efficient operations for an application? Of course, that's ridiculous. But at the same time, the reason that AI and ML has become such a buzzword or so successful nowadays is because it was put against the big data sets that heretofore we were not able to access. Because of the proliferation of all these communication links, we now have access to data stores that scientists never had access to before. So over the past 10 years, the reason that we could pattern recognize a cat in a video we couldn't do it in, 20, uh, in 2000, and we can do it in 2020. Well, why? Because we're able to take those machine learning algorithms and actually sick them on all these different data stores and data sets. And we're gleaning insights that heretofore have never been able to do. That's why AI is a big deal right now. 
So data analytics is key. And what we're trying to do is figure out how to get those insights without creating this monstrosity of a centralized database. What does the future hold for technology and innovation for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jamie Holcomb, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. You know, Jamie, in the interest of time, I'd like to get into a couple of more questions uh, before I let you go. And, and one of them is around the importance in your work as a champion of innovation. You know, how do you leverage partnerships and collaborations uh, to improve uh, performance, but also to, uh, to, you know, facilitate innovation? You know, that's a great question. I think it uh, boils down to human nature. Um, I, I like to do things in threes, right? So a traffic light is red, yellow, and green. Everybody understands that. You know, if you have three classes or three priorities, everybody understands. Top priority, number one. Second, number two, no, number three. Okay. So, in relationships and how things are done, at the basic level, things are always done between people. And if you don't have the reality and the sincerity and the credibility of people, then you really don't have that relationship. And relationships are only uh, developed through experience. And so you have to have experience and do things. You can talk all you want. If you don't do things with people on a base level, you can't have a relationship. And what does doing mean? So on the executive management level, I have me and my colleagues work to set strategy and vision, but we actually have to do it. You know, you can't just walk in and say, oh, here's my vision. Well, great. Well, what do your colleagues think about it, right? So you have to gain the support of the finance of the CFO, because if you don't have that support and the funding, you're not going to get anything done. You have to gain the support and, and uh, of the general counsel because if you're proposing something that's illegal or, and you don't even know it, right? You're just, hey, let's do this. So anyway, there's that at that first level. And that's at the top. When you look about top down, when you do the bottom up, I love bottom up because I think that's where things really happen. You look at uh, our economy. It's really the small businesses that make things happen. The large businesses, you know, of course, they're, they're behemoths and, and they provide the continuity that, that you have the cash flow to survive these bad times like we just did in COVID. But I guarantee it's not going to be the big companies that grow. It's going to be the small companies. It's at the line level. And when you get things at the grassroots or the line level to work, that's what you need to do to scale things. And you need to have that reality. I don't care what they say at the top level. What, you know, let's put a man on the moon. Okay, well, that's great. But 
you know, we got to have the basic rocket science down. And when you send up the bird, when you send up rockets and they fail, you can't get to the moon. So at the grassroots level, you have to get that done. And then it's the bridge to the middle. And that's where we have a big problem in the government because our middle bureaucracy, those middle managers, always seem to have the most inertia, right? You have the top exec, go, 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 you know, you have the blind, hey, look at this. But that middle is the inertia. Oh, yeah, I've seen this guy come and go. I just got to outlast him. And so that middle inertia, that cultural way to get things done, you have to have that convincing of the majority of that middle in order for you to really be successful throughout the entire enterprise. So I like to say it's all about the relationships and making things real, always at three levels. That's a wonderful perspective um, and, and very true in practice. Uh, you know, I don't know if you have anything else to offer, Jamie, around, you know, workforce development, recruitment and retention and what you're doing in that area. Oh, heck yeah. So as I described before, you know, we talked about the matrix organization and everybody is telling us it can't be done. I love to be told it can't be done because that just provides me the fire to get it done, to overcome an obstacle. So if you, if people out there are running into, well, we can't do it that way, it would never work, challenge, because it can be. And I swear the challenge is amazing because there were a number of things, well, it's an it's a executive order. Okay, what's the number of the executive order? Oh, well, well, it's not really an executive order. It's more like a department policy. Okay, well, who signed the policy, right? And you keep going down and down, and then you find out it's just a preference. So stop it. Let's do this more efficiently. Let's get this done. So I'm all about being bold and challenging the status quo. You know, it's a great, you know, one of the things I was asking about is how has the CIO in the federal government evolved? And you've kind of alluded to a number of characteristics, but I was wondering in your mind, Jamie, what do you need to be, what, what kind of characteristics do you need to be successful in this role? So everybody's got a different style. As you can tell, I'm pretty much in your face right now, but there's other styles that are just as effective because they're credible. So the CIO needs to evolve to the point where they're a true colleague at the strategic level, at the board, at the table with the other executives. If you work for the CFO, which a lot of them do, the fact of the matter is all you are is a expense and your success depends upon how cheap you can be to get the service just good enough. So unless you really have the CIO speaking with the CEO or the director directly to who's in charge of the agency, you really don't have a seat because you'll only be looked at as a tactical component. I think based on Fatara and all the new uh, reporting structures that that brings it out from the CIO, uh, out from the CFO and into the boardroom and sitting at the table with the directors and the agency heads. And that's a good place to be. However, now, remember, it's not just for you. You're a support role. And as soon as you keep forgetting the mission, if you sub-optimize IT and you sub-optimize finance and you sub-optimize logistics, who cares? What Are, are you getting the mission done? Everybody wants, oh, I'm great at this. Well, who cares? Did you get the mission done? Did you accomplish what is your mission? That's what needs to be talked about. Mm, that's a wonderful way to transition. Well, two more questions. I'd like to combine them because I think they're kind of naturally 
uh, akin to one another. And that is you, you, you obviously are passionate about the work you've done. You've achieved a lot in your time at, uh, at PTO and you've gotten the recognition most recently, the Washington executive uh, government executive of the year award. Yeah. I was wondering what does that recognition mean to you? And, and more importantly, what advice, given that that recognition, that achievement, would you have for someone who is thinking about a career in public service? That's a great one. I've been asked that uh, personally amongst my uh, LinkedIn network a lot. The fact of the matter is, it's not about the recognition, it's about the team. And so anything that you receive as a leader is because the team has earned it. And if you don't realize that, you don't belong in the position. So the team is the one that produces these awards, and you need to give recognition to the team for getting it done. They need to have your gratitude for what they've done for you. And then to realize that, one, it's not about you. It's about servant leadership. It's about making sure things happen for the team. Your job, yeah, it might be to set the mission and have this great idea and everything else, but guess what? It's all about you getting the resources to make your people successful, period. It has nothing to do with you. So you got that's the biggest thing. In order to be successful, you realize it's not you. It's about the team. And so that's the biggest piece of advice I can give in. That's a wonderful way to end the conversation today, Jamie. I, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to us about the work you're doing over at USPTO. And more importantly, Jamie, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, I, I can't thank you enough for the, the ability to bring my message out. And if there's anything I can say at the end, it's this mission first, but people always. This has been the business of government hour, a conversation with Jamie Holcomb, chief information officer at the U S patent and trademark office. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Mission. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.